HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards & Sons, third-generation cure masters producing the country's best dry-cured and aged hams, bacon, and sausage. For more information, visit surreyfarms.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this half-hour journey through culinary history. And, ooh, have we got a fun show today. It's all about pies. Or maybe cupcakes. So, wait, today it's fried chicken and macaroni and cheese. I mean, who would have ever thought that these familiar comfort foods of yesterday would become today's trends? Well, we're going to talk all about it, and you're going to hear the why and the what in just a couple of minutes. But first, I want to introduce you to a guest who's sitting with me, and she's sitting in to listen today. And her name is Sarah Kernan. She's a PhD candidate um, from Ohio. She's at the university, the um, history department at Ohio State University. And it's interesting, I, I met her um, at a culinary historian event the other night, and she said, she was excited. She said, oh, you know, I've used your show as references before for my studies or her classes um, that she teaches mm-hmm. often. Yes, yes. yes. And uh, her dissertation is on the production and use of cookery books in England and France from 1300 to 1600, exploring the mass communication shift from manuscript to print through the lens of cookbooks. Well, and we could even call that a trend. Look what's happened. Yes, exactly. <laughs> well, welcome, Sarah. Thank and you. I hope that you're, Sarah's in New York um, for a couple of months because she has been awarded a special um, fellowship to at the New York Public Library yes. on, in food studies. And I hope you enjoy your time in New York and I hope you enjoy our show today. Thank you. And I said we would talk about all of these food trends, and a very special guest to talk about it is David Sachs. David is a freelance writer specializing in business and food, and he's explored this topic in his entertaining new book, The Tastemakers, Why We're Crazy for Cupcakes But Fed Up with Fondue. Welcome, David. Good to be here. <laughs> uh, David um, David joined me a couple of years ago for his his first book, which was Saving the Deli, The History of the Delicatessen. And I have to say that I'm in, I've, well, I haven't finished the book, but I am enjoying this book just as much as the deli book. I have, it is, it's a lot of fun. And you must have had a lot of fun writing it. 
Uh, yeah, yeah. It, uh, it was a very different sort of creature from the deli book, um, but very, very interesting. I, I, um, I sort of saw a side of the food world that uh, I think a lot of people don't necessarily get to see, and I was uh, very fortunate to have that opportunity. Right. Well, now, uh, David, um, we're talking to David. He lives in Toronto, uh, but you did a lot of traveling around this part of the the, the, the country as well to research this book. Um what tell me what would you cons- what is a what is a food trend i mean how does a food trend differ from just a popular new product uh, you know, I, I, I sort of, the definition is constantly moving, even in my own mind. Um, but I, I sort of have come to sort of define it as, um, I guess, a, a collective behavior of appetite. Um, you know, a society-wide craving for something. Uh, it could be something new that didn't exist, like the cronut that appeared last summer and all of a sudden everybody wanted to eat it. Um, or it could be this revised interest in things like mac and cheese uh, or pies, which sort of sit dormant for a while and then all of a sudden um, uh, have this cultural capital that that, uh, that gets um, attached to them and, and everybody wants it. That's right. I mean, it's uh, not exactly a new product, right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, well, now you, in your book, you um, you basically delineated four major types or different types of trends. Can you explain that for us sure um you know it's it's uh, it's a fairly flexible definition and, and they do sort of bleed into each other in terms of categories but um you know there are there are i think the most obvious for for uh, your listeners and most people sort of who are consider themselves into food are chef-driven health trends um uh you know something that uh some chef in new york or los angeles or toronto or london creates in their kitchen uh and then that that flavor combination, that dish, that idea um, spreads out and, and you start seeing it in menus and other places um, where that chef has never been and, and it sort of filters its way down to sort of supermarket food. Um, you know, I thought about your, your son's restaurant, Fatty Q, uh, and there's a restaurant here in Toronto that does you know, Southeast Asian-influenced barbecue. Um, uh, you know, that is, that's a great definition of it. That is, you know, your, your, your son Zachary did you know, created or, or um, this mashup style sort of southern barbecue with these uh, Asian flavors, um, and it became popular and written about um, and sort of uh, chronicled in a way that it sparked a trend, and, and you saw then chefs um, doing it in, in all these other cities that may not have even you know, eaten at IQ. Um, there are agricultural trends, which are very much on the opposite end of the spectrum. Um, they're not sort of flash in the pan things created by, um, you know, this one individual. Uh, it's often a much longer, laborious process created with, you know, teams of people who are looking to um, revive uh, a particular product or breed um, a new plant or, or, or a new strain of animal um, that then becomes itself popularized and, um, and can have a great impact not only in terms of dining but in terms of, you know, the way food is grown and cultivated and raised. Um, there are health and diet trends, which um, you know are, are are fairly ubiquitous, and it's everything from you know the so-called superfood craze around antioxidants and um, you know different <laughs> berries like the Brazilian acai berry or, right, or kale, all of a sudden what, really and, healthy, um, to diets like you know the gluten-free diet or the fat-free diet or the cholesterol-free diet, um, or you know those crazy. You know, Southeast diet. Um, those are, you know, a whole other 
sector of trends. Uh, and I, I think those are sort of the, the most powerful and, and, and somewhat dangerous ones. Uh, and then there's something uh, that is the uh, the cultural trend, which is uh, the best example is cupcakes. Um, it takes something that already exists, uh, a food that, that people know and, and are familiar with, and it changes it by injecting it with a different narrative, a, a different sort of story that all of a sudden makes that food something else. Um, the cupcake went from being this children's birthday treat to uh, uh, this symbol of sort of feminine sexuality because it was associated with sex in the city. Right. Um, and on the back of that, it grew into this worldwide industry of cupcakeries, um, which continue to spread, even though it may not be popular in, you know, Soho and the West Village. Um, there are new cupcake shops excitedly opening up in Sao Paulo and, um, and Pakistan and, and Rwanda, um, which is, you know, incredibly interesting, um, but just shows that when something is, when, when a trend has a cultural force behind it, um, it can really drive it into places that, uh, cupcakes never would have been or other foods. That's right. Well, you say that it the cultural um, kind of reflects something that's going on in our society. Well, what about, would you lump in, um, you know, the new ethnic cuisines with this as well? I mean, as the world gets smaller and more people are traveling or immigrants introduce their food, certain ethnic cuisines over the years have become extremely trendy. Yeah, yeah. Now, that that I find is actually a, a somewhat different process. I mean, I think it, they are cultural trends in their way, um, but they can be chef driven. So if you, um, you know, if you think about the the great sushi boom uh, in in North America in the 1980s and 90s, where sushi went from being this very rare, very refined, and it was so rare it was raw uh, <laughs> food that you know people had eaten in Japan and. You know, maybe you would have with Japanese businessmen, there'd be one or two places in each city, and it was, it was scary and expensive and amazing to something that you can get in any supermarket now. Um, you know, there there were a number of factors that went into it. So, um, you know, you there there was the, that cultural reflection, which was you know Japanese business people, uh, Japanese corporations in the 1980s really came to sort of dominate the conversation around consumer culture in North America. Um, you know, the automobile industry. Everybody all of a sudden was driving Toyotas and Hondas. Um, every kid had a Nintendo, and you know, lived by um, characters named. Uh, Yoshi. Mario, <laughs> um, <laughs> I did. Uh, you know, Japan was Japan was sort of this cultural force, and with that became came food, came sushi. Uh, it, it became something that was cool, but it was also driven by um, uh, chefs uh, like uh, Chef Morimoto in Los Angeles, who uh, you know took that food and and tweaked it, took something that was very traditional and tweaked it to to give it a to make it into the North American market, blended it with other flavors, globalized it in a way, um, and that evolved into you know, California rolls and um, and you know mango chicken rolls and things that have no relation to anything that's eaten in Japan, um, but it becomes something that's culturally acceptable, and and so the food moves from that ethnic enclaves into the mainstream, uh, and you're seeing that more and more these days. You see it with um, Southeast Asian foods, and you know just look at the popularity of sriracha hot sauce. This this Thai-style hot sauce, um, which is now in Subway subs, mm-hmm. um, and and has really moved again from that niche into the mainstream. Uh, so as it, as things are getting more globalized, that 
that's happening a lot quicker. That's right. Um, my uh, the the young woman who's sitting in with me, listening to the show today, Sarah. We actually met at a culinary historian program on ramen, and. You know, in part because ramen has taken off. It's a new craze. And who would have thought, you know, this bowl of noodle soup, you know, which took on a, a much different um, uh, connotation from Japan even. And it became even a, a trend in Japan before it hit here, obviously. So do we kind of overdo things when when something suddenly becomes the new kid on the block or the new trend? You think we just drive it into the ground? Is that what I mean, what kills a trend? I, I think it is, it, you know, it, it is a question of, of overexposure. I mean, remember that, you know, as much as it's cultural and as much as we're talking about cooking at home, food is a business. Um, it's one of the biggest, most powerful uh, businesses that employs probably some of the, the majority of, 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 of other industries in, in, uh, in this country and, and in other countries as well. And, um, and trends represent dollars, um, dollars that have been gained and dollars that are out there to be gained. If you can do something popular um, and you can sort of latch on to the, to the trend bandwagon as it's moving, then, um, then you know, far be it to, to sort of ignore that in the name of, I don't know, culinary purity, right. uh, which is why you get bacon in every sort of product <laughs> when bacon becomes popular. And um, and obviously, it reaches a point where it, the market becomes oversaturated, and it, 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 there's a, this level of ridiculousness, and it jumps the shark. Uh, but along the way, you know, that is pushing people to innovate and, and do better things. Um, so you think of the bacon trend, you think, oh, God, it's just so overdone. There's bacon ice cream, and you know, an entire menu of bacon stuff at, at Denny's and, um, you know, bacon-flavored lip gloss, uh, you know, enough with this. But that also had the effect of getting your average consumer to demand better quality bacon raised from better quality pigs. Um, you know, you can get apple wood smoked bacon at McDonald's now, which is something that you never would have had before. Um, there's far more brands of niche bacon and boutique bacon out there that are growing faster and doing better. Um, and so, you know, as much as we say, oh gosh, you know, not another cupcake shop, um, it, it's, it's, it, it, it represents uh, a sort of a spirit and an economy of entrepreneurship. Um, that has a tremendous benefit, I think, at the end of the day. That's true, um, and that and that was more beneficial than than Silicon Valley, right? And that was something that it was one of my um, points that I wanted to get at. You know that that there are certainly trends aren't a bad thing, and you just mentioned a couple of the of the beneficial effects. Do you, would you think that most? I mean, more beneficial effects um, are derived from the agricultural trends, or uh, or it's a mixed bag. I, it's a mixed bag. Um, you know, look, there are agricultural trends that, um, let's say, you know, I, I mean, GMOs are, are an agricultural trend within the agriculture business. A lot of people would argue that they're um, they're not beneficial and they're harmful. Mm-hmm. Um, um, you know, various Monsanto crops. Uh, I, I don't think trends are good or bad in one way or another. They can be anything. I mean, they're, they're you know, massive, supersized meals and burgers. That That's a trend, and that is... That is, you know, not beneficial to our waistlines and the health, the collective health of our society. Um, but the trend, the growing trend of eating organic and, and sort of humanely raised meat, which is now something that, you know, places like Chipotle and McDonald's are talking about, um, those are beneficial and you can certainly right. see those benefits. I, I think where it's most beneficial and, and, you know, the fun kind of more fad driven culture of food trends, um, which, you know, 
weeds that the food world talk about um, is 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 that you know the economic benefits and the cultural benefits of that entrepreneurship that it that it, um, that it pushes. So you think about a, a pop up market such as Schmortisburg in New York with the various food truck lots <laughs> and food trucks food trucks in themselves all around yeah. North America. Um, you know, a lot of those people are sort of reaching for the next trend. And you get crazy things like ramen tacos and ramen burgers, which <laughs> are definitely faddish. It's not like we're not going to all be eating ramen burgers in the next couple of years. They're, they're you know, link bait, um, um, food press bait. But what they do is they push people to try new businesses, to, to start new things, to invest, um, to, to create jobs, to sort of generate um, income and, and excitement and, and, and new business models that um, both benefit, you know, themselves and the people who work for them and, and, and the greater society financially, um, but also culturally push us forward, push us to say, okay, well, everybody's doing Thai food. What can we do? What's going to be different? Why don't we try Malaysian food? Why don't we try, um, you know, food from Goa? Why don't we, why don't we start selling um, food from Paraguay? Um, it, it pushes the bounds and, and it keeps our food culture from becoming static, which I think is something that we often take for granted. Right, and the business aspect is something that I want to hold on to. We have to take a short break, but I want to come back to the business aspect of the food trends, too. So hold on, and we'll be right back after a short break. The following program was brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards and Sons. Edwards Suriano hams are aged to perfection for no less than 400 days and hickory smoked to achieve a deep mahogany color. The Edwards name is well known for its world-class aged and cured meats. Their exclusive curing and aging recipe produces a unique flavor profile that enhances the quality characteristics of Berkshire pork. Optimum amounts of pure white fat marbling contribute to a flavor that's a delicate, perfect balance between sweet and salty. For more information, visit edwardsvaham.com. Hi, I'm talking with David Sachs, the author of The Tastemakers, Why We're Crazy for Cupcakes But Fed Up with Fondue. Poor fondue. <laughs> it was. It had its day. It was fun. <laughs> but, David, it'll, I want, it'll come back. Yeah, okay, all right. It, Everything it, old know, is new again. Right. <laughs> we'll have some really cold winter. <laughs> okay. Um, you know, I wanted to, yeah, I wanted to come back to the business point, um, and, and that sort of answer... Uh, um, asks the question, you know, like, who? Who, st- some, who starts a trend or how do they get started? And the post-war um, 
industrial environment was a big one that started crazes. I guess you could call them crazes. Well, you know, we didn't ask for them, but suddenly there they were, such as cake mixes, puddings, and jellos. Uh, that was sort of foisted upon us and became a craze, I guess, for a while. Yeah, yeah I, I mean, it, you know, the, the the idea of, of I think, technologies and, again, you know, what people value um, uh, it is, it is certainly can drive trends. Um, you know, that, that post-war idea of convenience, um, of, um, you know, science coming to sort of solve, science and chemistry coming to solve all our all our um, all our problems. Now we can be liberated from the kitchen. We don't have to pickle things and preserve and cure them. And you think about the difference between the 1950s kitchen and today, and, it, and it's incredible <laughs> because we've tried to go back to that period. Right. Um, and then I'm sure in a couple of years it'll it'll swing in the other direction. It's like okay, enough of the artisanal pickling or anything. Just, yeah. just want a jar of pickles. Well, you know, in the um, as, I don't want to have to wait ten weeks for them. <laughs> right. Um, it's certain lifestyle movements, um, and I I'm think of groups like uh, the hippies, the yuppies, the hipsters. A lot of food trends are center around these lifestyle groups, uh, certainly. Some, and some that had benefits too, you know, the organic farming and all, you know, these um, eating mm-hmm. health, healthfully and things like that. Um, how, but food trends have existed way far back in history. What's, what's one of some, an old example of a food trend, if you will, that you can cite? Certainly. I mean, I think, you know, coffee is a great one. Um, it's not something we need. It's not a staple that was sort of there for our survival. It's this, um, you know, indulgence in a way uh, that that started off as this very isolated crop in Ethiopia uh, and then moved around the world and became this, uh, you know, central thing to um, to you know, Turkish culture and European culture, Italian culture, um, and, and became a staple. Uh, and, and so you've seen the coffee trend really continually evolve in all sorts of different ways. Um, uh, and, and yet it's, it's, it's central. So we, we may brew it differently. We may eat, consume it differently. It may take different forms in terms of different types of businesses. Um, but, um, but, you know, it's it, it, its roots go back a long, long way. That's right. Uh, yeah. and, and so, I think the difference today is that um, these food trends evolve much, much quicker. If coffee was discovered yesterday in Ethiopia, it wouldn't take you know two hundred years for it to make its way to Vienna and, and Venice, and um, and then to, you know another five hundred to Starbucks. It would happen in the span of. Uh, uh, you know, a year or yeah, less, right? Because everything's so interconnected. We we share our food culture now online and in, in media so much more easily and so much more widespread, right? And so, of course, we're seeing many more food trends today than than ever before. Um, but spreading is is another point how food trends spread. And actually, my guest has a question for you, Sarah. Yeah, I'm really interested to hear your thoughts on how certain trends take off. Uh, better than others. There are lots of little regional trends that never seem to make it nationally or internationally, while a lot of global trends seem to take off uh, really well here, at least in the States. Why Why is there such a difference? That, that's, that's a really good question. Um, you know, I think it is, it is, it is a multi-million dollar question in terms of uh, certainly the food business. They're always trying to figure out what is going to be the next thing to take off. Um, what is the next trend that we can take and, you know, 
put into our McDonald's sandwiches, uh, and will it work? Will people sort of buy into it? I think that the ones that generally succeed in taking off and, and becoming widespread long-term trends versus sort of regional fads or cultural fads um, that are more short-term are the ones that have the, the broadest possible appeal. Um, you think about cupcakes and bacon, or bacon cupcakes, let's say. Uh, you know, as much as they've gone in all these sorts of crazy directions, fundamentally they're they're two um, trends that are built from uh, culturally familiar things that uh, most people can relate to. You can relate to cakes you can you've had or smelled or know about bacon, and it, it's sort of been a part of your diet in some way or another, unless you know you don't eat it for religious reasons. Um, uh, and and they're easy to get your hands on. You can get butter, eggs, sugar, flour, baking soda, um, and and you know make cupcakes. My wife made cupcakes for her daughter's first birthday the other day. It was fairly easy, messy but easy. Um, and and you know bacon is readily available. Any chef can go out to the corner store, buy a thing of bacon, cr- you know, cook it and crumble it up and put it in an ice cream or in a cookie or or you know with Brussels sprouts or whatever. Um, so when you think about some of the ones that are that are that haven't caught on, um, people are are saying, you know, why hasn't um, kale sprouts caught on the way that Brussels sprouts or kale has? Well, kale sprouts is you know a, a relatively new vegetable that doesn't have a, a, a strong supply chain and, and a strong supply and doesn't you know ship very well. Um, Food and Wine magazine I read a few weeks ago it's in some one of their online stories. That's saying, you know, uni is going to be the new bacon. Uni is the, um, the flesh of sea urchin, the sort of orange, slimy, um, somewhat sweet um, uh, creature of the sea that, that's eaten a lot in Japanese restaurants um, and somewhat in Italian food, I think. Uh, you know, that's going to be the new bacon. And I don't think they meant like you would eat it with eggs and pancakes, but that, that it would be, you know, it could, it could go into any dish and we're going to crumble it onto anything. Well, that's never going to happen because, you know, it's, unless people start cultivating huge aquaculture farms of, of sea urchin um, and and everybody's all of a sudden just going to flip switches in their mind and be like, yeah, this is definitely something that I'm going to eat. Uh, it's just going to appeal to sort of a, a small niche of knowledgeable um, eaters uh, and, and, you know, your average person in a suburb in, you know, somewhere in the middle of the country is never going to have... Um, uh, uni salad or uni ice cream, um, and has no desire to. And, yeah, and you know, and conversely, I think that um, I think sometimes it's it's kind of sweet that some regional trends don't make it out of the region because you know it's gotten to the point where we're so homogenized. It's kind of nice to keep some of that regional difference. You know, as we travel across these these huge. Uh, great states and and our northern neighbor yeah. Canada to see some different you know like uh, you know Putin how that hasn't become ubiquitous in every street corner in New York City but yet you know you go to Canada and there it is all over the place right so yeah or at least certain parts exactly. it's nice to have regional differences I think oh uh, sure. yeah. yeah in um, in writing this book, as I say, you interviewed a lot of interesting people, um, especially in some of the chef-driven things, and also in about uh, different trends, restaurateurs. And, of course, trends are not just um, um, unique to food. And of course, there's fashion, there's art, there's music, there's... You know, and but restaurants being a part of the food chain. Restaurants are, you know, too, are trendy. Um, 
in fact, we've even adopted the word in, in, in the gerund form and called it a verb, right? Things are trending. When, when, when did that start? Yeah, but that's, that's very interesting. What was the most interesting or surprising point or interesting person that you, that you interviewed or, or learned while researching this book? Um, I, I interviewed and, and, and briefly met a woman named um, Susie Badaraka, who uh, is uh, living in Portland, Oregon, and has a company called Culinary Tides, um, which essentially does food trend forecasting. Uh, and she's not, you know, going to the hottest restaurants in all the different cities and saying, hey, you know, this is what David Jane's cooking, and so, you know, you, Starbucks, should make it. She has a background in um, uh, forensic criminology. She used to be a, 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 the type of person who would sort of um, predict where criminal was going to strike next for the Orange County Sheriff's Department. She trained in courses taught by the FBI and Scotland Yard and uh, the, the Marine Corps, um, and then took that analytic analytical mind and, and worked in the food industry for Nielsen and um, Nestle and, and, and big food corporations. And essentially what she does is mine data um, and, and tabulates all sorts of data points to build a map of where taste is moving um, that she tells her clients who are all the big food companies, um, whether it's you know, restaurant chains or, or companies that are making um, different products that we buy in the supermarket. Uh, and you know, I went to one of her presentations, which she did at the Culinary Institute of America as part of this um, healthy food summit um, that you know everybody from McDonald's to the Mushroom Board to the Alaskan Seafood Council was there. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was just this crazy jumble of information and and um, and words and and characteristics and you know she refers to trends as orphans and stillbirths and you know um, and not yet conceived and it was just it was incredible to see first of all how incredibly smart this woman was um, and uh, and how much data goes into the real science of food trend forecasting this is not you know your food and wine or or um, ears you know, top 15 food trends for 2015 to watch out for. Um, this is this is like this is deep, you know, Wall Street level analytics um, that is taking everything from immigration rates to um, economic statistics and job reports to uh, the the statistics of how many flights Americans are going on to X and Y destinations, and and crunching that down into these are the flavors and foods that you know you might think about investing in. And checking out on because they're going to provide the greatest chance of a trend going mainstream as, as Sarah was, uh, was talking about. All right, Ex- excellent. Uh, so yeah. she, she was just a, a very fascinating individual um, and uh, and um, and there's a lot of uh, people like her, a number of them in, in, in the food industry that work behind the scenes to really take you know data and, and translate them into companies who can then figure out which food trends are the ones that they should be um, capitalizing on. Right, that's really excellent information. Then, so it, it really takes a lot more than three movie stars sitting on a bench outside of a cupcake bakery to, to create a trend, right? Although it yeah, worked, well, it worked. To, to, to bring it sort of to the mass market. Right. Uh, again, you know, I, I think these things. 
they still start with um, with those innovators, um, a, a creative person, a chef, a cook, um, you know, somebody want, someone writing a cookbook, uh, someone opening up a food truck uh, that's just going to say, you know what, I'm going to I'm going to do Southeast Asian barbecue. Like that's that's cool. It, that those risk takers are still the ones at, at the forefront. But um, there's a lot of people between them and you know the customer at Walmart buying a, a tub of salted um, caramels. Yeah. Uh, and 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 those are the ones who really take it distill it down. Right. It salted it, caramel. There you just yeah. You just hit another one. Salted caramel. And before that, you hit yeah. on another one from from long ago. Has a wonderful history. Ice cream. I mean, that was a great one too. All right. So here's the million dollar question, David. What mm-hmm. do you predict is going to be the next big food trend? <laughs> Well, first of all, don't take my word for it because I'm not, <laughs> I'm not a forensic specialist. I, I I looked at a number of them for the for this book, and I think there's a few that I certainly personally examined um, that I think have a good chance of becoming sort of bigger, better known food trends. Um, the one that I feel I think strongest about is um, is sort of mainstream Indian food in in, in mm-hmm. America. You see it more in Canada because uh, we have more immigrants from India and Pakistan and South Asian countries. Um, so here you can get a butter chicken sub at Quiznos. You can get a butter chicken poutine at poutine chains. Um, uh, you'll start seeing that, I think, in America more. It, there have been people who have tried to be doing this for decades, um, but I think now the combination of immigration patterns um, of a sort of uh, a second and third generation of American-born uh, Indians and South Asians who are really prominent in the culture. Um, think about, you know, the best-selling novels of Jhumpa Lahiri and, um, you know, the, the top comedians are um, Aziz Ansari and, and Mindy Colling. Mm-hmm. Um, that that will, will, will filter down until someone will open up, um, you know, an Indian Chipotle. And, right. Uh, translate a, a very rich and and varied and, and complex cuisine into something that Americans can eat in their front seat of their car. And interesting, and like, yeah, you know, that I, will, that that'll open it up, right? And, and um, your uh, the section you wrote about, in fact, you wrote about Indian cuisine and you wrote about Cafe Spice. I was I was really um, very intrigued with that because I had no idea that it of its background and the starting of, of Cafe Spice and how. Immigrant workers, well, that we know through history and how different cuisines are developed, and and often it's through the the workers, the immigrants who come and either cook their own food or cook it and serve it to other workers. And that certainly that's why that's why I asked that question about ethnicity, ethnic foods, you know, um, you know, being lumped in with the cultural changes. And certainly it is. I mean, because workers come to fill a certain niche in a, in a country and always bring their food with them, right? That's For sure. I mean, if you think about, you know, Chinese food, um, uh, which is such, I mean, it's certainly a staple in my family, um, uh, you know, good Jewish Sunday night dinners. Uh, you know, that 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 came with, with the people who were brought over to build the railroad. Um, and and they, they, they stayed and brought the cuisine with them and opened up restaurants and, and built this entire um, market uh, for for this cuisine, which is now, you know, fairly mainstream. Um, uh, I don't think there's too many people out there who've never eaten Chinese food in, in North America. Uh, I, I'd be shocked. If right. right. One. I, I mean, if you say it, it's not a foreign. It, does, it doesn't sound like a foreign cuisine anymore. You know, it's a, we've we've encompassed it into our our whole um, yeah, culinary in, lexicon. In, in some, I, I, but it revives itself too, right? So right. our idea of Chinese right. food today is different from our idea of Chinese food in the 1950s, and it'll probably be different. 
20 years from now, um, uh, we, we think we know it and then we sort of go back and, and rediscover it and reinvent it and, and it gets brought by, you know, brought to the forefront. So now we're seeing this rise of, um, sort of high end, uh, Chinese or American Chinese, um, uh, Mission Chinese food or Red Farm in New York City, um, which is, you know, again, taking something, taking a traditional element and making it accessible right. uh, to, to a, a different audience. Well, I'm, I'm going to, first of all, let you know that my son is on to another wave and, and it's he didn't create the trend but once again you know hitting on a, a new trend and that's you know locally sourced farm to table he's he's you know off on another trip there but um i'm gonna throw something out that i'm gonna predict and i don't know how if this is not really a food trend i guess it is i guess a certain flavor becomes trendy right sumac that's the next yes. big food trend well, okay. that's, that's, Everything's going to be mean, flavored I, I, with sumac. You know, I could sum it up in one word, Otolenghi. There you go. Um, <laughs> there you go. Yeah. That's, certainly that's why I know I have it in my head. Um, <laughs> you know, that sometimes there's a cultural moment where sumac's been around. It's nothing new right. in the Bible. Um, uh, but there's a, there's a cultural trigger. And, um, you know, the success of that Jerusalem cookbook two years ago, I guess, yeah. um, was such a phenomenon that uh, not only did it did it increase sales and interest and in, you know of of sumac and za'atar and all these different ingredients and spices pomegranate syrup um, but you're now seeing all these nouveau israeli restaurants opening up everywhere every single city has them i mean here in toronto there's like four hummus places that hipster hummus places that have opened up in the past yeah. in the past six months um and, and so it's amazing it's, it's, it's amazing to see that and so it we're seeing it's so sumac uh, yeah, now it's now it is you know in in the cities and with people who read that cookbook and with sort of foodies, but it's you'll start seeing it go in all these different directions. Yeah, my daughter in law, my daughter in law harvests up on up you know upstate, and and, uh, and so yes, I know that this is going to be if you can harvest it locally, and you know whoever thought you would want to, it's going to be a big thing, and uh, and. Th- it's just too much to keep up with, <laughs> but I'm so glad that yeah, you. I'm so glad you wrote the book. Sumac Doritos. And, uh. <laughs> right. I, I'm so glad you wrote this book because it it opens our minds to you know to thinking about you know what it is we're eating and where did this all start and how is this you know wh- where is it going, and I just. I just can't wait to see what you come up with next, David. It's it's great. And thank you so much for sharing your time with me and, and your knowledge about this wonderful topic of food trends. Everything old is new again, right? And thank you, Sarah, for sitting Indeed. in. Thank you. It was my pleasure, Linda. Thank okay. you so much. And thank you for listening. You've been listening to A Taste of the Past, and I'm Linda Palaccio. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.